Happy Father's Day to everybody, father or not. It's a happy day. It's a happy day. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> in a paragraph, I just want to summarize what we've seen so far. The book of Acts is about... It's the account of the continuing ministry of Jesus, the Son of God, through the people of God, by the power of the Spirit of God. So, Jesus was crucified by men and then raised from the dead by God and then having been exalted by God to the right hand of God, Jesus received from God the promised Holy Spirit of God. And then, one day, some 2,000 years ago, so, Jesus poured out the Spirit of God on the people of God. And he has continued to do so ever since. And when the people of God receive the Spirit of God, well, they know. They know something happened. Something completely different happens than anything they've ever experienced before. Completely different. The senses of their souls are flooded. Something akin to being drenched uh, or immersed or baptized in water. Their soul senses then taste and they see and they feel the truth of Jesus. And this experience of feeling the truth of Jesus is completely different than simply knowing the truth of Jesus. Completely different. And the entire purpose of Jesus giving this gift and that, that's what it truly is. It is a gift, and what a gift. What an unspeakable gift. Most excellent gift. The, the purpose of this gift, this experience, is so that the people of God might be witnesses. Witnesses everywhere. And to every person, every person that the everyday grace of God and providence of God directs them to. Say it another way, the purpose of this gift of feeling pleasure in Jesus is so that we will spread this gift of pleasure in Jesus. And what the writer of the book of Acts relentlessly then presses upon us is this question, have you received this gift? Have you received it? Have you experienced the fulfillment of this promise? And so the book of Acts is about what happens when through this precious gift of the fullness of God, experienced through the empowering activity of the Spirit of God, it fills and overflows the people of God in order to continue to carry on the ministry of the Son of God. And the account continues now in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 12 today, so please follow along and and please hear the word of God with faith. And as they were speaking to the people, 
the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for speaking to us through Scripture. Thank you for addressing us. Thank you for communicating yourself, your very presence, your, your activity through this book, through these pages. Thank you, Lord. It's through the instrument of this word, scripture, that the Holy Spirit uses, points to the truth, directs our attention to the truth, makes the truth live in our hearts in such a way that we feel the truth. Thank you for the work of the Spirit. Thank you for the work of your Word, your truth. And Lord, that's how we want to engage with you today, in spirit, in truth. We want to, to know the truth about you and feel the truth about you as that truth is revealed in Scripture. And we want to ask that the continuing ministry of Jesus would be discernible among us in this gathering today. Jesus would just keep on doing all that he began to do 
Keep on teaching all that he began to teach. Keep on accomplishing all that he set out to accomplish. Jesus, Jesus, build your church. Build your church, we pray, for the glory of God. Amen. Well, I have a friend who is gay, and he is he's married to his second husband. His first husband died of AIDS. <clears throat> and this past Monday morning, this friend posted um, an emotional rant on Facebook regarding the, uh, the horrific massacre that took place in Orlando last Saturday night. And the climax of my friend's public expression of emotion ended with this. He says, I am sickened above all by the words of an evangelical pastor who took advantage of this occasion to condemn us with the words of Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And therein lies the true evil that generates these murderous acts of hatred. So my friend drew this line, connected some dots, connects this act of um, violence done by a, uh, a rather complicated, troubled individual who, who professed allegiance to radical Islam, was known uh, as an emotionally unstable, angry person. My friend drew, drew connected the dot between um, that act that happened last Saturday night by that man to the unfortunate expression and conviction of a conservative right-wing Christian. Now, I don't know where my friend came across the quote by the so-called evangelical pastor. If it was said um, and quoted accurately in context, well then, that pastor's use of Galatians 6-7 is certainly reprehensible, uh, insensitive, falls somewhere short of Romans 12-9. Uh, which says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In other words, um, I feel sympathy toward my offended friend. Um, however, my friend's reaction is representative of a framework through which a rapidly growing number of people view those of us who embrace biblically defined morality. That is, we live in a so-called inclusive world. And the so-called inclusive world we live in is passionately exclusive toward anyone that favors exclusivity. We live in a world that celebrates inclusiveness of everyone except those who sound exclusive. So, someone who says something like Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, 
There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You talk like that and an, an avalanche of public disapproval will bury you. Peter's testimony in Acts chapter 4 verses 10 to 12 is representative of the kind of exclusivity our culture fears. Peter's sharp comments, they're sharp, uh, are representative of the kind of attitude generated by biblical exclusivity that our culture hates. And since talking about sin makes people uncomfortable, calling people to repent of sin then is offensive and unnecessary. There's a profound pressure rising among those who profess Christ, who aim to make and multiply disciples of Christ, to just tone it down. Like, take a more positive approach. Be nice. Don't offend anybody. And so, I, I, I confess, um, there are times um, when I feel a temptation to feel anxious about inevitable and increasing restrictions on my religious liberty. <laughs> there is a temptation at times to feel anxious that I could get sued. Uh, I could be unemployed because somebody was inclined to make me a martyr on social media. You know, in the, in the book of Revelation, there, there are two main opponents to the spread of the gospel. There's the prostitute and the beast. And the prostitute is symbolic of that seductive attraction of comfort and entertainment and satisfaction and, and things that we feel entitled to. It, it, everything that just satisfies the human appetite. And the prostitute has seduced the people of God away from the fullness of the Spirit of God and thus the continuing ministry of the Son of God in our country for, well, a long time. The other op uh, opponent to the spread of the gospel in the book of Revelation is the beast. And the beast, on the other hand, is some symbolic of, of persecution and affliction, sometimes violent affliction of the people of God for their allegiance to the Son of God. And the beast has been satisfying its bloodlust on the literal flesh of the people of God in most parts of the world. Well, well the first reverberation is, is right here in Acts chapter 4. And so in our culture today, the beast is just beginning to rear its threatening and intimidating head. And it is into this approaching, intensifying reality that God has for us, I believe, a preemptive, preparatory, encouraging word. Namely, God's promise 
God's promise that we will be witnesses is not made null and void by opposition. It's not. God's promise cannot fail no matter what. Rather, and this I believe is the main point of this passage and this sermon, opposition is simply another opportunity for witness. Opposition is simply another opportunity for witness. I want to take the rest of our time. I want to draw your attention to three observations here from the text, and then we're going to close with some, trust some helpful, useful exhortations. So here's the first observation. And that, that has to do with the real problem or the underlying problem. The, the, the trouble that Luke recounts in, in Acts chapter 4 is a result of events that took place in Acts chapter 3, which we looked at last week. And the focal point of those events, as you may recall, is the, the miraculous healing of a man who had been lame from birth. A man who'd never walked in his life was healed by Jesus through Peter and John by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it rocked people. <laughs> it rocked them because they knew him. And when he starts his happy dance, they just all come running. They come running to see the miracle man, but they also are running because they want to experience a brush with fame. Acts chapter 3 verse 11 says they clung to Peter and John. Oh, we just want a piece of you. So the healing was an expression of the work of Jesus and the ensuing sermon from Peter was an expression of the words of Jesus. This is just a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then in chapter 4, then we see this strong reaction, verses 1 through 3. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, so we got, a, we got some building pressure here. They came upon them. <laughs> they, they fell on them, kind of like a panther out of a tree, and, and greatly annoyed, and they arrested them and put them into custody. That's just the beginning. The next day, the real heart of the lineup comes to bat, verses 5 to 6. The next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, along with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and, oh, by the way, all who were part of the high priestly family. So anybody reading this for the, for the very first time, the original audience who was familiar with Luke volume 1, they would have felt what I, what I like to call, you've heard me say this before, they, they would have felt the echo effect of past trauma. Because what's going on here sounds remarkably similar to what happened to Jesus. Same cast of characters recounted in Luke 22 and 23. The, the tension in this narrative is rising because the first time around, it did not end well. And so what's the problem? Well, uh, it's certainly... 
There's certainly an authority issue. The authority of the rulers and elders and scribes and high priestly families being challenged. According to verse 2, it says they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. And it's a different teaching. And that's a problem. But it's also a political issue. The rulers, elders, scribes, high priestly family, they're all part of this complicated, multi-layered leadership system. A system that required, uh, it, it just required making sure the big brother was always happy. You know, Rome. Rome was always looking. And, and so like all, if most, if not all, political systems, there, there were rules in place to protect and reinforce the perpetuation of the system. And in, in a city like, in the city of Jerusalem, city probably most people estimate a, had a population of between 60,000 minimum, maybe upwards of 100, 120,000. An emerging movement of, uh, of about... Uh, 5,000, that, that's, just, that's just counting the men, according to this text. 5,000, uh, that would present uh, a threat to the fragile balance necessary so that the totalitarian acts would not fall. So, so it's no wonder big guns called in for an intervention, but that's still not the biggest problem. There is still a deeper, more fundamental underlying problem. I, I believe that the real problem, the most significant issue, was a theological issue. Loved ones, we just always have to keep in mind that ideas have consequences. <laughs> um, Ideas have consequences. They, you talk about ideas, you talk theology, you talk doctrine, and there will be consequences. Like Acts chapter 4, verse 7. And when they had set them down in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And this being healing a lame man. There's no denying the man was healed. But where did the power come from? You see, that's a, a theological question. And Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives a theological answer. In verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Every time we read that phrase, we just just take a deep breath and yes, Lord, do that, do that. Keep Fill me. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. You want to know the power? 
You want to know the name? You want to know the means? Jesus Christ of Nazareth did this. Now, for a moment, let's just kind of leave the highly provocative comment about who crucified Jesus out of the discussion. I kind of wonder sometimes, what, would he, what was Peter thinking? Didn't, he didn't need to go there. But maybe he did need to go there. So, but we'll pause for a second on that. Just focus on the theological implications of the name. The name. The person, the power, the means by which the crippled man was healed is a man. He's a man. He's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Scandalous. Scandalous. The power to heal comes from a man? The power to heal comes from not just any man, but, but a man from a town from which most people believed nothing good could come from? The name by which a cripple is healed is a man, a lowly man, and by inference of Nazareth, a no good man? Shocking. Shocking. Oh, but there's something more shocking. What's more shocking is the claim that this no good man of Nazareth is the Christ. If ever there was a theological word, it is Christ. Christ means Messiah. Christ means divinity. You put, the, put two and two together now, and you have a common man from a small town with a lousy reputation together with divinity. <laughs> and the pot is now stirred. Oh, and if we're still not clear on the power or the name or the means, this Jesus, this, this Christ who came out of Nazareth, is, according to verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's the Jesus we're talking about. That's the Christ we're talking about. That's, that's the Messiah. That's the stone. You know, the stone... You people would know this, you religious leaders. You know the stone we're talking about, the one referred to in Psalm 118, also known as, a.k.a. our salvation. Now let's be clear. Um, Peter's audience here, they would have clearly understood, they would have clearly heard him referring to a man as God. And they would have clearly understood him referring to God as a man. And according to their theology, that is blasphemy. But to Peter, to Peter, this is the necessary ground. This is the foundation. This is, this is the cornerstone of our salvation. 
It was necessary for the Savior to be a man. Only a man could fulfill the role of representative, a representative life, representative life of perfect adherence to the righteous and holy law of God. In order to be accepted by God, we need a perfect life. But all mankind has sinned. We've all refused to bend the knee before God's infinite wisdom and goodness and power and His invitation to trust Him and delight in Him and His holy and perfect will. So how can, a, how can sinful human beings draw near to God only through the representative holiness and perfection of another Man. But it was also necessary for the Savior to be God. Only one who possessed infinite nature could vindicate infinite glory. Only one of infinite nature could pay the infinite debt that our sins accrued against an infinite God. Only God can justify God. So how can one man, how can one man pay a penalty that would be commensurate for all the sins ever committed by everyone, past, present, and future? Only a man who is also fully God. Only God stooping an infinite distance and assuming infinite humility to become fully man. Only God become man could fulfill such righteousness in his crucifixion represent a sufficient sacrifice to pay the penalty and vindicate the infinite dishonor caused by our ongoing scorn of self-reliance and self-righteousness and self-exaltation of God's infinite glory. So yes, you killed a man. But it was necessary that a man die as a sacrifice. And yes, God raised him. God raised that man to demonstrate that the man that you killed is also fully God. And because he is fully God, his sacrificial death is therefore, in fact, sufficient to pay the penalty for all the sins ever committed, past, present, and future. You rejected Jesus and you killed Jesus and in doing so you fulfilled the very cornerstone of the saving plan and purpose of God and therefore, according to verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, if the real problem is a theological problem, it's a theological issue. We're, we're claiming that a crippled dude was healed by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A crippled dude was healed by the God-man, the man who is God. Well then, what we, may we ask is, what's the real question here? What's the ultimate question here? Is the, is the ultimate question just who did it? Or is the real question, is Jesus really who Peter says he is? 
Is Jesus really, in fact, the God-man who alone can save and justify and blot out our sins, who alone can make us right with God? How does Peter know? How can all the heavy religious dudes know? How can all the people of Israel know that Jesus is, in fact, who Peter says he is? Well, let's break this down. Was Jesus really a man? Peter says they can know that Jesus was really a man because they crucified him. They, they succeeded in killing him. Jesus was rejected, condemned, probably right there in that very room by those very guys. He was tortured and killed. Jesus was the man. He, he was a man who actually died. That was an indisputable fact. But is Jesus really God? Well, Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead. How do they know? How do we know? Well, partly, according to Acts 3.15, we know that God raised Jesus from the dead because to this we are witnesses. Peter and company saw him alive. The empty tomb and a risen Christ prove that Jesus' death was accepted by God and therefore Jesus is God. According to Romans 1.4, Christ Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, how? By His resurrection. So there, let it be known you killed him, proving he was a man. And God raised him. We know it because we saw him, proving he was God. And not only that, not only that, we know that Jesus is alive. We know that Jesus is divine. We know that Jesus is God. And this is so important. This is so important. We know it because he is continuing his ministry. He's continuing his ministry. He's still doing all that he began to do. He's still teaching all he began to teach. How, how do we know that? How do we know that? How do we know he's still doing it? Exhibit A is right over here, walking and leaping and praising God. And exhibit B is happening right here and now. Spirit-inspired speech. Jesus is pouring out His Spirit right now. And the Spirit of Jesus is inspiring this bold defense. Proclaiming the very same thing that Jesus taught. That He's the way and the truth and the life. And no one can be right with God except through Him. Is Jesus who Peter claims He is? There's your proof. There's our defense. Now, one more observation. And it has to do with mission. Remember I said at the beginning, opposition 
is not an obstacle to mission. The, the mission is unstoppable. Jesus' continuing ministry through his people by the Spirit cannot be thwarted. And I see two reasons for this in conclusion, this encouragement. Reason one is, um, is in Acts chapter 4, verse 5. So in, in spite of in spite of these guys coming upon them <laughs> and arresting them and custody, jail time, and, and all this, about as much intense intimidation as you could probably muster by the opposition, still, and, and, and the, the ver, verse 5 is introduced with the word but, which is a great word under these circumstances. It says, but many of those, but in spite of all that, Many of those who heard the word believed. In spite of all that, didn't stop the word. Didn't stop the continuing ministry of Jesus. And the number of men, just, just the men came to about 5,000. See, under the circumstances, that kind of response would be pretty compelling evidence. That even formidable opposition cannot thwart the fulfillment of the mission of God. But I believe that Luke wants us to feel even more encouragement. In his first book, Luke records this, this prophetic word from Jesus. This is from Luke 21, verses 12 to 15. Here's what Jesus says. He says, they will, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate before and how to answer. For I will, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You know, Jesus made, the, made that series of, that whole string of promises just before he was arrested, just before they came upon him, laid hands on him, brought him into the court where Peter and John are now standing. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are just living out the reality of Jesus' prophetic word and promise. They were arrested. They're on trial. And it turns out that all that intimidation, all that opposition, all that challenge is not an obstacle to the gospel at all. Instead, the opposition was itself an opportunity, an occasion provided by God to bear witness. This will, this is, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. It's amazing. 
Luke 21.14 is often misinterpreted to mean don't plan, don't think ahead, don't prepare, don't, you know, just wing it. <laughs> so this is, this is the, the proof text for everybody that's really unorganized. Just, just wing it. When in fact, what it really means, I think, simply, is don't worry, don't be anxious, because when the Spirit comes upon you, I will inspire you. Spirit-inspired speech. I will, you, I will fill you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses no matter what. No matter what opposition comes against you. Loved ones, Luke means for us to see that Jesus is so faithful. He's so faithful and he fulfills his promise all of his promises, and he provides all that we need to be his witnesses. He even provides opposition. How else would we get through the closed doors of the monstrosity of all the, that religious system of rulers and kings and governors and elders and what have you, all that stuff? How do you get there? to be a witness. It's no problem for Jesus. It's no problem. Opposition does not equal closed doors to witness. It equals open doors for witness. So what is God's word for us? Five, five real brief things. I think that we can take away from this for ourselves. <clears throat> yeah, I believe it diminishes worry or at least the anxiety that losing our religious liberty would mean that we can't be witnesses anymore. So if you know, if if we're anxious about losing liberty, well then that's that's one thing. But but losing our liberty is no, is no obstacle to witness. It's like the open door to witness. <laughs> Under the reign of King Jesus, opposition to witness is simply another open door to be a witness. Opposition to Jesus does not void the promises of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there is power and the promise that we will be his witnesses. We will be. No matter what. Second, but then, of course, obviously, absolutely crucial, is the biblical admonition to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. To be continually filled. See, see, so that's the problem. Right? I mean, to be continually filled. Sometimes we're filled, sometimes we're not filled. Some days we're filled, some days we're not filled. S some have never, ever known what it is to be filled. They know the truth about Jesus, but they've never felt the truth about Jesus. I just, I try to keep imagining, Lord, what, what would it be like if, if today you just, you just gave one more person the feeling of the truth of Jesus? Just one more. 
And, and what would it be like if we ever got to the tipping point where there were more people that felt the truth of Jesus than those who just knew the truth about Jesus? That'd be crazy. It looks something like pff, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, or something like that. Wild. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It's for sons and daughters. It's for young and old. It's for male and female. It's for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Since we've begun this, um, these sermons in the book of Acts, I, I pray every day, Lord, I, I, I am, I'm depending on you. I'm intentionally trusting you to keep this promise of empowerment and fullness of joy in your salvation. Because feeling pleasure in your great salvation, it, I cannot fake that, I cannot muster that, I cannot make that happen. So I'm depending on you to pour it out on me, just like you promised, that I'd, I'd be drenched in it. So... There's no reason for us to settle for just knowing the truth of Jesus when we can know and feel deeply the truth of Jesus. Thirdly, pray for the sick and resist the devil. Um, this is all about the continuing ministry of Jesus through his people empowered by the Spirit. So every day there's an occasion to pray for the active presence and the continuing ministry of Jesus to be revealed, to be discernible. Every day, every day. Ask, you're going to come across people every day. People who are sick and suffering. You just ask them, would it be okay with you if I asked Jesus to heal you? Are you okay with me asking Jesus to pour out a, a greater measure of his Holy Spirit upon you than you've known before? Would that be weird to you? Just see what the Lord might do. D during your personal devotions, ask God, is, is there anyone is, or, or any situation I should be praying for? Every time I pray that, that um, somebody, something always comes to my mind. Every time. I, I pray every day for individuals that, that the Lord brings to my mind who ha have come under the rule or dominion of some sin, particular sin, or, or have some stronghold of darkness and unbelief. They just can't seem to shake it off. I, I'm, and, and I ask Jesus. I ask Jesus to assert himself there. Resist the devil there. I ask Jesus to, to, to make me attentive to whom he would bless through me. These guys were just, they were just going to the temple to pray. Boom, there's a dude who had a need. And they, they asked Jesus to heal, and Jesus healed him. And it showed that Jesus is alive and still doing what he does through his people who are empowered by the Spirit. Pray. Pray for them. And better yet, Better yet, pray alongside of somebody else. Do it together, two by two. Fourthly, proclaim Jesus crucified. 
People need to know that Jesus died a sinner's death as a man. They need to know that Jesus bore our condemnation on the cross. People need to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. They need to know that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our witness is that God made Jesus, God made Jesus, this man who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our witness is that Jesus Christ suffered and died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us God. Loved ones, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't for the punishment of his own sins that he suffered. It was the punishment for his people's sins. A penalty was paid in full. A record of debt with legal demands against us was canceled. Justice was satisfied because a man, Jesus, was crucified. But if Jesus was just another man, just like us in every respect, including our fallenness and including our sin, well then, he would no more be able to save us than one dead man can save another dead man. And that's why we finally, lastly, proclaim Jesus as risen king. People need to know that Jesus is the son of God without sin and equal in every divine perfection to God the Father and thus able to defeat death and save us from our sin. The risen Jesus, the risen King reigns and he is still doing what he began to do and he's still teaching what he began to teach. He is like no other. In all our sorrows, in every victory, more than all comfort, more than all riches, Jesus is better. Proclaim it that we have no other king. Let's pray. And so, again, Lord Jesus, we're trusting in the promises that God has made and that your death guarantees we're trusting that as you have already poured out your Holy Spirit that when we when that Spirit comes upon us we will we will be empowered we will feel the truth of who you are not just with our heads, but with our hearts. And then we will be witnesses. And nothing, not even the gates of hell, can stand as an obstacle to you continuing your ministry of building your church. So come now, Holy Spirit, and grant to us a greater measure than we've known before. Come now and reveal the power and the activity and the presence and the continuing ministry of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.